The business of culture, the culture of business, markets, policy, media, and technology, entrepreneurs and creatives. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We do our top terms of the year at Investopedia. And for 2023, I'll give you the top one. It was the American dream. And it was not people seeking the American dream. It's a lot of people thinking that that dream is not realistic for them, especially younger people. They're locked out of the housing market. They don't feel like they'll ever be able to save enough for retirement. And that number is out of reach for so many Americans. We actually put a price tag on it, 3.4 million dollars in today's dollars of a lifetime of earnings to be able to achieve the so-called American dream, which is just that reasonable expectation that you can raise a family in this country. A lot of people don't feel that anymore. Back with us, Investopedia's Caleb Silver on the surprisingly good year for investors and the economy. Amid consternation over housing, the so-called American dream, and action on climate change. Stay with us. This episode is made possible by the support of Salomon and Ludwin, a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves. For over 30 years, Salomon and Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence, recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor. More at SalomonLudwin.com. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts. The link is FullDRadio.com. You can follow on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at handle FullDRadio. And a shout out to our listeners on WVTF Radio IQ, Virginia's NPR news station. You can DM me to carry Full Disclosure on your air. Joining me is Caleb Silver, Editor-in-Chief of Investopedia. He's a veteran business journalist. He was He's been at Bloomberg. He was former president of the Board of Governors of Society of Advancing Business Editing and Writing. He was senior producer at CNN for The Situation Room with Wolf Blitzer, on top of being executive producer of CNNMoney.com. Sir, how are you? So good, and so good to be back on Full Disclosure. Thanks for having me. I love having you, and by way of Full Disclosure, this is the next best thing to working with you, which I've tried for years, sir, making overtures, visiting you at CNN. You were always several steps ahead of me. So this is a kind of way of sublimating that as we have you on as the most frequent guest in the show's 10-year history. I mean, we're turning 10 next year. Um, I love doing it because we are, first and foremost, a business program, business always in the news, and you're on top of it by the minute. Thanks for having me. And we're still young, Robin. We can still work together. It's not over yet forever young. I have to ask you, though, uh, what's not young? Well, it is young, kind of, this rate cycle. I don't even know if that's a great transition. You would block it in your days as an editor, uh, that kind of term. But we are at high interest rates right now, high relative to where we've been this century, and all indications that the Fed is done hiking, right, which was supposed to be transitory inflation that we had coming out of the pandemic. We went from zero to, you know, decently above 5%. It's choked off many forms of lending. It's brought pain back to the housing market, even though there are many active bidders out there. I go on your website, Investopedia, and I see that people are just crazy about researching uh, you know, ways of locking in high yields for short-term money right now. Is that the zeitgeist? Because after all, investors are saying you should be looking at risk assets again. Yeah, well, we've seen that push and pull happen all year, but lately investors have been leaning more into stocks. They're a little late given the 20% rally for the S&P 500, and we probably did hit what we like to call an econ speak, that terminal rate, the rate at which the Fed is done raising rates, and that happened last July. We're at five and a quarter to 5%. Fed has been holding the last several meetings. The big question is, when are they going to start dropping rates in 2024? And it used to be the thinking that that would happen in the second half of the year, but as you know, Robin, the drumbeat has been getting louder about an earlier cut to rates, maybe as early as March, potentially in May. And that's what's driving this big rally in risk assets like stocks and cryptocurrency again. I don't think anybody started the year thinking that we would not have a recession necessarily. Advertisers pulled back. It was all but kind of fait accompli, the self-fulfilling prophecy, but it never quite fulfilled. What it did do was accrue to a lot of the big tech giants, you know, the tech-heavy NASDAQ has had a monster year. You look at Apple, NVIDIA, some of these companies that routinely cross uh, above a trillion dollars in market capitalization, which would have been unthinkable. And I'm quoting uh, Charlie Bellello, the likes of growth stocks, you know, higher risk, higher reward are outperforming value stocks this year by 32%, which is the second biggest outperformance on record with data going back to 1979. Only 2020 was bigger. Uh, it's, you know, 
people haven't been prioritizing value per se. It's been kind of the animal spirits of growth at any price. And you talk about crypto as well. Yeah, absolutely. And and it's the land of the giants, Rob. And with these big stocks, especially the Magnificent Seven that led the gains all Who year. Who are in the Magnificent Seven? Will you spell that out for our sure, listeners? Sure, sure. Uh, Apple, Amazon, Microsoft, NVIDIA, Tesla is in there, and a few others that were Alphabet is in there as well. So these are the big tech stocks or the internet e-commerce stocks that have really driven the gains. And these are the most widely held, most widely traded stocks on the planet as well. We talked about NVIDIA. NVIDIA's stock is had an incredible year. I think it's up over 200%. A lot of that has been driven by AI. But these big stocks have been driving the gains. And when you talk to market watchers, they talk about bad breath, B-E-R-A-D-T-H, bad breath in the markets and that it hasn't been balanced scoring. You know, on a basketball team, you want a bunch of players in double figures and putting up rebounds as well. We haven't had that, but it's starting to happen over the last six to seven weeks. We're starting to see market breadth improve as it's not just the MAG7 carrying the stock market anymore. It's broadened out. Even small caps, which are ultra sensitive to economic cycles, those have been improving lately as well. Sentiment has definitely shifted. The question, the big multi-trillion dollar question, did it shift too soon? Are people thinking the Fed's going to pivot too soon and have been rushing back into risk assets in anticipation of that. And Fed Chair Powell, very, very demure with his comments in all of his press conferences. It's all data dependent. And, you know, this war on inflation is not over. Remember, the Fed wants inflation in the 2% range. We're at around 3.1% right now. So there's a gap. I just have this feeling, and a lot of people have this feeling, we're not going lower from here. This inflation that we have is pretty sticky. The Fed may be done raising rates. But as you also know, Robin, rate hikes have this lag impact. They hit certain sectors first, like the housing market. You mentioned it. It's been in a deep freeze for the past year and a half. New cars, that's been in a deep freeze because it's six to seven percent to borrow for a new car. And all these other financing products have been sort of frozen up given these rate hikes. But we're done with that now. The question is, when do rates start coming down? And when they start coming down, is that a signal that the economy is actually in bad shape? Because people wish for rate hikes all the time because it does juice the stock market and risk assets like cryptocurrency. But usually when the Fed cuts rates, Robin, it's because the economy is not doing great. And right now, the economy looks good, but we'll see what that looks like in the first quarter and the second quarter of 2024. Let us not forget that we had a downright banking crisis this year. I, th- I mean, it's, you know, in the fog of everything that we've had happen over the last four years with, you know, pandemic and attempted insurrection and whatnot, it's easy to, you know, it's easy to kind of glaze over and say, well, these things happen. It's a time of volatility, clearly war, inflation, uh, spiking uh, gas prices. But that in and of itself, I was impressed that that was kind of like its own tightening when these banks had a freakout, a collective freakout. And I think it resulted in two of the three largest bank failures in U.S. history at a time that we were not in economic crisis. It was nothing like 2008 or the savings and loan crisis. But I think the problem was that these banks were sitting on too much cash and people moved to cash very quickly. And that whiplash brought about some self-fulfilling prophecies and bank failures. But maybe that too kind of helped the Fed do its job of tightening, because if the banks were being much more careful with their capital, it's not like the Fed had to come in and and hike one or two more times. Yeah, absolutely. You're absolutely correct. And Jay Powell had said during those bank failures, it is a form of tightening because banks are tightening up their lending standards. So it kind of worked. But you're absolutely right. We we had walls of worry throughout 2023. And the bank failures were just one of them. That was in the spring. It feels like it was years ago. But, you know, we have war in the Middle East, war in Ukraine, persistently high interest rates, relations with China. We've also had the inverted yield curve. There's been inverted yield curves throughout the year. All of these things you would think would be precursors to doom in the stock market. That is not what we have seen at all. Investors have been really anxious to put money to work, and they're finally doing it in force, especially in the last six to eight weeks. We'll see if that trend continues. Usually after a year like the one we've had, we get gains the following year, but we are entering a presidential election year, which usually shakes up the headlines, but it doesn't actually shake up the market so much. So we'll see if this trend can continue. We're in the best six-month stretch for the stock market anyway, from about November till about April. We'll see if the trend continues into the new year. Caleb, on the Standard & Poor's 500 Index, which is the uh, benchmark of choice, I mean, yes, the evening news might start with the Dow being at a record or near a record, but institutional investors 
and brokers and the like, they benchmark themselves against the S&P 500, which I don't want to get into wonkistan. It's cap weighted. The bigger you are, the better you do, the more you represent of the S&P 500. And so now you look at it, the S&P 500, and it is in many respects a tech fund. The top 10 holdings represent about 31% of total assets, but tech alone represents north of 25% of these. I'm talking about Gigantic capitalizations such as Microsoft, Apple, Amazon, NVIDIA, Google, Meta, uh, Tesla. I mean, rounding it out is Berkshire Hathaway and United Health. But this is a problem with something like this is if you do well, you end up holding a tech and growth fund because capitalization wins out in this. You know, it's kind of like an electoral college of sorts that multiplies the effect of standing. I mean, a lot of people out there might think that it's 500 equally rated individual companies. There's a way of buying that. But no, you're buying essentially right now in this moment in time, if you have an S&P 500 index fund or ETF, you're buying a overwhelmingly tech and growth fund. And that we have seen in the past is risky if you compare this to the year 2000. Yeah. Overconcentration swings both ways. When those stocks and those sectors are doing well, it lifts the whole market. And that has been the story of 2023. When they're not doing well, it takes the market down with it like we saw in 2022. But you know what? We've had this in various cycles and it always sort of plays out to, to script. We had this with telecom companies um, in the 80s. We had it with oil companies in the 70s. You had it with internet stocks in the late 90s. You want to go all the way back to the, the early railroad days in the beginning of the 20th century. You get concentration of sectors that are dominating the market. And our economy is tech-driven, no two ways about it. So it's not a surprise that you have these stocks doing the best and they have the biggest market caps. And P.S., they're the most widely held stocks by individual investors and institutional investors. We survey our readers every two months to see what their favorite stocks are. You just mentioned their favorite stocks. The top 10 are the top 10 performing stocks. We have this preponderance to go with large home-cooked stocks, and that's sort of been the case generation after generation. We're in this tech generation, probably going to switch over to AI sometime soon, and that will be the next bubble and the next carrier of stock market returns. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. My guest is Caleb Silver. He is editor-in-chief of Investopedia. We love having him on because he could take queries from all directions. He, in past lives, was at Bloomberg and at uh, CNN and CNN Money. Caleb, help me get my head around what you call terminal terminal rates, right? If, if the world right now, if the Powell Federal Reserve is satisfied that they've done all the hiking that they've wanted to do, that even leaving rates at these levels for a while is its form of kind of tightening or you know choking off excess in the economy at this way. What does the Fed want people doing? It's not like the housing market needs all that much help because even as mortgage rates have shot up, you still had aggressive bidders on the sidelines. And I compare this Fed to other Fed hiking cycles. If you go back to Paul Volcker in the early 1980s when we last had inflation, like this or like what we experienced over the past two years, you have to throw the economy into recession. You kind of have to break it to fix it. Yeah, that's kind of that been the philosophy over time. So what does the Fed want? If you ask any Fed official or Fed chair pal, what do you really want? They're going to tell you two things. We want price stability, inflation in the two to two and a half percent range, and we want full employment in the labor market. What is full employment? Three and a half to four percent unemployment. Where are we now? Three point seven percent unemployment. Check on that. Price stability, they'd like inflation lower. It's come way down from those nine percent highs back in July of twenty twenty two, but it's not in that two, two and a half percent range, but it may never get there. Why? Because things like food and shelter costs have just gone up year after year, and they're not coming back to where they were pre-pandemic anytime soon. The supply chains of the world are different. We have various factors that impact the price of things like wheat, like the war in Ukraine. Oil prices are very unpredictable, but right now they've been very low. So all of these things are unpredictable, but they want that price stability, they want full employment, and they want consumers to keep spending. Why? Because consumer spending is 70% of our GDP, and we are spending ourselves silly. We're in record high credit card debt. We have an average debt per borrower north of $6,500, but we keep spending just like our government keeps spending. We are a spending economy. we got to keep spending. The Fed wants that to happen. It wanted to slow down the economy. It wanted to slow down wage growth in the labor market, aggressive hiring in the labor market, and it also it wanted to slow down the fact that it's been selling bonds now, what we call quantitative tightening, back onto the market, reducing its own balance sheet to try to get the economy back to normal. But normal looks a lot different in 2023, 2024 than it did three, four years ago, pre-pandemic, and certainly back to the Volcker days or even the 90s. 
Why would the Fed want people to keep spending at this point? I understand it's important. You know, you want to have your cake and eat it too at this point. But there's no shortage of FOMO spending out there. If you try to get into an airport or a resort or get a restaurant reservation, I mean, you and I have a, a little bit of Miami in common. It's a crazy inflationary environment down there. And unemployment is at multi-decades low. So you're already getting certain traders and Wall Street firms romancing the idea that the Fed next year could be cutting rates? Wouldn't that be stimulative all over again, as if you need the stimulus where you're trying to get people to maybe pull back, hold on to their money more? I always thought that the whole intention of keeping short-term yields high is that you would have people lock their money up and maybe it would not be spent. You'd think twice if you could get a 5.5% on a one-year CD or a two-year CD that, you know what, I can cool my heels right here and hold on to cash for a little longer. Yeah, well, the Fed, you know, wants that inflation in the two to two and a half percent range, but it also wants the spending to continue because spending gives companies pricing power, and pricing power allows them to expand and hire other people and continue to grow. But it really, what it really wants is Goldilocks, right? Not too hot, not too cold, just right. Now, what is just right? Just right to the Fed is two to two and a half percent inflation and that full employment that I was talking about. Anytime it goes beyond that in one direction or another, the Fed's either going to tighten or loosen, become hawkish or more dovish. And right now, they're right in that middle point where they have been hawkish for the past year and a half, for the past 18 months. And the question is, are they going to start to turn dovish and ease up on monetary policy in the first half of the year so banks will start lending again, so that credit card APRs come down and that mortgage rates come down? You talked about the housing market. Let's get into that because that's so important for people. It's psychologically important, right? The house is the biggest asset you'll ever buy. For most people, it's the most money you'll ever spend. And for a lot of people, it is the foundation of building generational wealth to pass that home on to future generations. Well, new buyers have been locked out of the housing market for the past year and a half. Prices have shot up because supply is so tight. That's pushed a lot of people into the rental market. The rental market has become very expensive. That shelter cost I was talking about is a result of that. So the Fed wants to ease a lot of that, get the housing market going, because we spend a lot of money when we buy houses, but not too much. So Goldilocks is really hard to achieve. But they, they they don't have surgical tools to do this. I mean, it's not like anybody would be complaining. And I can't get my head around this. You kind of almost do need a housing crash right there and right now to demand destruction or bring prices down. But those people who have been waiting on the sidelines with cash might not be in a position in a you know down economy to finally pull the trigger on buying that home. This is the lament I keep hearing. And then if you listen to people like David Leonhardt, if you go you know listen to podcast right now. There there are people that just might have to resign themselves not being homeowners for a decade or a decade more. Yeah, absolutely. Look, we we look at what our readers have been looking at all year. We do our top terms of the year at Investopedia. And for 2023, I'll give you the top one. It was the American dream. And it was not people seeking the American dream. We believe it's a lot of people thinking that that dream is not realistic for them, especially younger people. Why? They're locked out of the housing market. As we said, they can't buy that asset to build their families. They don't feel like they'll ever be able to save enough for retirement. And just figuring out the cost of real things today to have a reasonable expectation of raising a family in this country, sending kids to college, you know, marrying somebody off, funerals, having pets, owning a few used cars over your lifetime, that number is out of reach for so many Americans. We actually put a price tag on it, $3.4 million in today's dollars of a lifetime of earnings to be able to achieve what the so-called American dream, which is just that reasonable expectation that you can raise a family in this country. A lot of people don't feel that anymore because Again, the house is out of reach right now. The ability to save for retirement is out of reach. Wages have been growing, but super slowly. So if your wages have been growing and you're making over $200,000, that's a big deal at 4%. But if you're making $75,000 around the median income and the, and your wages have gone up 4%, you don't feel it as much, especially because inflation has been 4% or higher for most of this year. Back in my personal finance reporting days, Caleb, I'd love meeting with this fund manager, Ronald Muhlenkamp. Um, You know, he's a tractor driving guy from Pennsylvania. He's a farmer fund manager, uh, went to HBS, but also talks about his grandpa, you know, losing his walking because an overly aggressive rooster pecked at his knee or something like that. Like he could talk these terms. And he's almost nostalgic for an era when earning children and grandchildren would turn around and buy a home 
from a grandparent, and that would provide fixed income in retirement back in the day, that there was this generational handoff of housing. And now, you know, when you're talking about the American dream, it's so distorted by zero interest rate policy, by speculation, by this pandemic, which not caused, not just, you know, caused a a rethink of of housing and maybe a renaissance of housing, but I would also say fetishized housing. There are Older people who are holding on to their homes that are maybe hoarding inventory in smaller satellite cities. There were wealthy people in the big cities that now hold on to their apartments and get something in the suburbs. And that crowds out everybody else outside of it that does not have access to cash or cannot come in and be nimble enough with an effective bid when maybe very rare inventory turns over. You know, when you talk about the American dream right now, there's a true rethink of it, especially, I think, you know, among the millennials who face so many calamities, you know, since coming out of college graduation. You're absolutely right. Half, more than half of homeowners have mortgages that are under 5%, right? So they're in no hurry to sell their home to go out and buy a new one at a 7 or 8% mortgage. And you mentioned all the people that are holding onto their homes. What about the private equity firms and the other big Wall Street institutions that have nothing but cash to buy homes and buy entire zip codes of homes if they want or apartment complexes, and they become your landlord. So that happened back at the end of the last, at the great financial crisis, starting to happen again today. So cash rules everything around the housing market right now, but inventory is super tight. And again, that feeling like I'll never be able to even get the starter home to make my way into the next home, that is pretty prevalent among younger generations right now, as are the other things. Now, that American dream I talked about is so unique. It's very different for you. It's very different for me. It's different for every one of your listeners, because we all have a different idea of what that means. But again, that basic concept of can I raise a family reasonably, have insurance, send my kids to college, pay for health care, pay for weddings and funerals and pets and those things. That just seems like it's not attainable for so many people right now. So they're rethinking it. And what does rethinking it mean? It means rethinking the way we work. And that happened right through the pandemic. How do we work? Where do we work? Who do we want to work for? The value of experiences and what our money is supposed to be used for, right? The cost of being us and the cost of being the us we want to be is something we all need to figure out individually. And that dream was manifest the American dream, was really manufactured by the financial services industry over the past 50 years. You see the commercials on the Golf Channel, they're aimed right at me because <laughs> they want me to think that that's what I need in my life. But that that term, the American dream, was actually coined in 1931 by James Truslow Adams in a book called <laughs> Epic of America, Robin. And it was about the notion that this was a country where you could sort of chart your own destiny. Everybody had an opportunity and that was written in the depths of the Great Depression. So the dream has just been morphed generation after generation. And right now, again, it seems like it's not real for so many people. You know, coda on this and that it came out as, as the most, as the you know, term of the year, the American dream. Uh, we're reminded of how much intergenerational wealth matters. Uh, just the, the power of compounding, the mind-blowing statistic, I still can't get it out of my head that if a 1917 soldier, U.S. soldier on the way to World War I put $1,000 in a mason jar and buried it versus $1,000 in the S&P, it wasn't the 500 back then, and just let it compound for uh, 106 years, you know, the millions of dollars you would have versus the $1,000 you have. And you think about people who inherited generational wealth, people had stocks passed down to them or homes passed down to them or were blessed to have a 529 that was funded by a grandparent. There are a lot of people who start off at second and third base. And I'm increasingly hearing kind of resentment of, of, of people who were first to go to college who realize I have that, but I also have debt and I didn't have anything to hang my hat on in terms of money bequeathed to me that would have been giving me a, a head start on housing to say nothing of elder care costs and the other things facing Gen Xers. I mean, it's a complex time. Absolutely it is. And again, the way we work and the, the notion of work and building a career someplace, one company over time, that's long gone. You just think about, you know, back in the, in, the, in the latter part of the 20th century with the end of the pensions and the move to the 401k and the responsibility was finally, you know, was on the, the, the worker and on the, the, the consumer versus the company. All of that has changed that thinking. But the magic of compounding has been here all along. So you can complain about a lot of these things, and a lot of people have a right to do it, especially folks that never had an opportunity, never had generational wealth passed to them, never had somebody pay for college or get them started on their first home. 
But if you started investing back when you were 20 and you're 50 right now, uh, you've had the magic of compounding. There's a reason that Albert Einstein calls it the ninth wonder of the world. It is the magic of the stock market, which goes up an average of 9 to 10% a year, going all the way back to the beginning days of the S&P 500. I always ask this question. I teach a lot of high school classes, and I talk to kids about, what if you just put $10,000 in the S&P 500 10 years ago, and then you went away to the circus for 10 years and didn't look at it? What would that be today? That would be about $25,000 today. You're talking about how to double your money over time? You need time. And that's the magic of compounding. So there are ways to combat this gap that people feel in their lives, but we don't teach investing and wealth building in high school. We don't teach it to kids coming out of college when they're saddled with all this debt. Instead, we incentivize them to spend and they end up in debt and they feel like they can never get up that slippery slope. Think about you know my first week in college um, and, and the activities fair and all the credit card applications that were there. I had to learn how to sign a checkbook and everything, and we just did not get that education in high school. We had you know, AP economics, but no personal finance. Yeah, you got the free Frisbee, the water bottle, and the new credit card the day you showed up on campus, and then you and all your roommates had, the, you know, had all these things plus a new credit card to go spend on Friday nights, and you never learned what it actually means to have good credit, bad credit, what the impact of the other side of compounding could potentially do to your own balance sheet. And 30 years later, I'm just a poor journalist, but do stay with us. Full disclosure podcast to NPR, Spotify, and all fine podcatchers. The link, please subscribe and rate us and recommend us, is fulldradio.com. Again, fulldradio.com. You could listen to our sold-out live show that we had recently with U.S. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg. You can sign up for our next live show with NPR Steve Inskeep. It's going to be January 31st at the Robbins School of Business at the University of Richmond. And generally, just follow us on all socials at handle fulldradio. If you're just joining us, my guest yet again is Investopedia's Caleb Silver. We're talking about this peculiar year in markets and the economy that refused to throw in the towel. And, you know, one of the things I don't understand, because the last, you know, when we had the lost decade, Caleb, for United States stocks after the great dot-com collapse, that was a great decade for international. It really, it really vindicated and validated diversification, being in uh, developed economies such as you know Austria and the UK and and France and Australia and especially emerging economies Brazil India China frontier economies like the Philippines had a gangbuster decade and yet I look at the numbers right now and it still blows my mind that this international diversification has not worked it it's been dead money for 15 years. Yeah, it worked for a few minutes earlier this year when it looked like international stocks would lead the rally over U.S. stocks. But again, then we had that concentration of the Magnificent Seven, those big tech stocks, which took the market higher as soon as there was a, a whiff in the air that the Fed was done raising rates, which was back in July. The market really started rallying in mid-October of this year, and it has been on a tear ever since that. And international stocks have just not kept up. This was supposed to be the year also that the Chinese stock market sort of corrected itself after a couple of years in a spiral, and that just didn't materialize this year. Again, the Chinese stock market is very important to U.S. companies and to U.S. investors. They may not know, but they have exposure in companies they may not be aware of, and half of U.S. companies do business with China. So that was a, a development that didn't manifest this year. But if you look at some manufacturing economies and you look around the world, you've seen a big recovery in places like Germany and others, but the U.S. is still the dominant stock market. That's where most of the assets are. That's where most of the trading in, and that's where the biggest, most successful companies in the world are traded. I see Mike Bird. He's the Asia business and finance editor at The Economist. He posted this chart. Hong Kong's Hang Seng Index is now actually below its pre-Asian financial crisis peak in 1997. Astounding. And another comment said, two of the most dynamic global economies in the last 40 years, Japan and China slash Hong Kong, have seen their equity markets fall flat. Governance matters. I think about this a lot. Uh, are emerging markets only as good as China? I mean, is there pointless for us to try to focus on Brazil or Peru or the Philippines or anything in sub-Saharan Africa if the Chinese engine is about to sputter out or China can't get its act together? 
well, this will make you scratch your head and your listeners too, but Argentina, which has about 144% inflation, that was one of the best performing stock markets of the year until, until just a few months ago. Brazil, which has its share of economic issues, was also one of the top performing stock markets of the year. Now, a lot of that has changed since sentiment has shifted back to U.S. tech stocks, but these economies, because of their concentration of mining, minerals, uh, fossil fuels, when that was important in the beginning of the year, when that was an investing theme that people were attracted to, those markets were doing incredibly well. They have a lot of political dysfunction. We have it in this country, believe me, and you know it too, but around the world, a lot of these economies in these countries are in, uh, have a lot of uncertainty, yet their stock markets were unbelievable outperformers to begin 2023. Now, a lot of that shifted back to the U.S. and risk is back on the menu here, but you're right, it has just not been possible for emerging markets and international markets to catch up with the strength of the S&P 500. You know, it brings up an interesting thing. I thought inflation was supposed to just be deadly to stocks, but there's this other school that, you know, you look at that Argentina example. Why would anybody in a hyperinflationary economy where there were articles of people spending and dining out because you want to spend the money while it retains value? Why would they be parking it in stocks? Uh, and then I think back to the infamous business we cover in August of 1979 that says the death of equities, how inflation is destroying the stock market. I mean, inflation peaked in what, 1982? And then you proceed to have the best two-decade run in stock market history. But then again, I see companies with enormous pricing power. I can't afford Starbucks anymore. I can barely afford Chipotle or torchies anymore. Eating out is a pain. Uh, you've seen the prices of cars go up. You've seen the labor gains that the workers at UPS and maybe uh, the United Auto Workers have gotten. And yet these stocks have done well. If you could push through the pricing power and you as a shareholder can participate in some of that, then where else are you going to go? I mean, gold hasn't shown itself or oil or maybe crypto in some years, but there hasn't been something that has been the perfect hedge against inflation. Yeah, we haven't found that yet. Gold's having a moment right now, and you mentioned crypto. Bitcoin has had an unbelievable year, up over 150% year to date, but there's a reason for that. But let's get back to your initial question, which is when you see economies in, that are having these inflationary tornadoes happening, like in Argentina, wh why would investors want to put their money there? Why would investors want to put their money in risky economies? Well, sometimes it's because you know money needs a place to go and some of these markets were so beaten down that they looked like they had upside potential and some pricing power so that's a reason that 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 happens but also, this has been a year where CDs and money market funds have become very popular with investors, institutional and individuals. Why? Because the flip side of these high interest rates, Robin, is that there has been money in the bank for the first time in years. I'm talking about CDs paying 5%, money markets yeah, yeah. at 5%, high yield savings at 5%. That feels safe. That feels good when there's uncertainty. But after a while, it gets kind of boring for investors. Money is like water. It needs a place to go, and it wants to go higher usually because because that's where the returns are. So as soon as I said, as there was a whiff that the Fed was going to be done raising rates and become a little bit more dovish, you saw that money start to pile out of CDs, out of money markets, back into the stock market. $111 billion in November went into exchange-traded funds alone, not even mentioning index funds, not even mentioning regular mutual funds. So investors want to put money to work. They have an appetite, and it needs higher returns. And those higher returns have come from the stock market and the crypto market. There's an element of kind of bartender last call at three in the morning, too. I've seen the activity on your website, on Investopedia with CDs. It's like the hottest place to be if you just want to lock in one or two year money. I, I try to imagine, you know, we have listeners who are boomers who are looking out for parents fixed income. Yes, as you said, for the first time in a long time, you could get north of inflation on a risk free asset, you know, a one year treasury or a CD backed, I think, to the tune of $250,000 per person by the FDIC. So there's also been a rush to kind of lock in that concession that the Fed has given us. Yeah, absolutely. And when you have that choice as an investor, especially if you want to take some risk off the table, 5% feels great. There are so many people that rely on their fixed income portfolios or their cash portfolios or their money in the bank to live either into retirement or beyond retirement. So that's been very good for consumers. That's been a good place to park their money. But for those investors that need upside, and I'm talking about the professionals that have to beat the benchmark, as you said, or even people who are younger who want to grow their returns over time, there's nothing like the stock market. 
the Bitcoin crypto market seems a little bit risky still. We had massive collapses, right? FTX and, and Binance and other big brokers went under. We had Sam Bankman freed. You thought that would have destroyed the crypto market? Hardly. The opposite has happened. It feels actually safer because there's more eyeballs on it. Now there's more watchdogs looking at it. In 2024, the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission, is likely to approve spot Bitcoin ETFs. And what does that mean? There will be exchange-traded funds that will actually track the spot price of Bitcoin that retail investors like you, me, and your listeners can invest in. And they're going to have oversight by some of the biggest money managers out there, like BlackRock, like Fidelity. So we're going to see a mainstream movement into crypto, which is why that asset class, if you want to call it that, has rallied so much this year. But, you know, I, I think this is important. It's not like, so you see the, the, the gold ticker. It's not even an ETF, GLD or OIL. These are derivatives. They're kind of futures contracts and they're distorted. If you're thinking that oil is going to pop 10% next week, they don't neatly track these things. And I'm not sure something like a Bitcoin ETF, while it's great, you could buy it on a broker, you could buy it over the counter. If you have a Schwab account, if you have an E-Trade account, it's easy. You probably could do it without a commission, but it's not exactly getting you one unit of Bitcoin. No, you're absolutely right. It's not like you own Bitcoin. You have a vehicle that tracks the price of Bitcoin. A lot of people have described a Bitcoin ETF as putting a, uh, a Ferrari engine in a Ford Fiesta and not getting the performance because you're not actually owning the, the, the asset itself. But, you know, a lot of people think they own Bitcoin because maybe they've, you know, got a thousand bucks in a Coinbase account or, or in a hard wallet somewhere. You actually don't own a Bitcoin until you own the full price of a Bitcoin north of $40,000. Right now, you own Satoshis. So they call it Satoshi stacking if you're buying a little bit at a time. But Bitcoin has proved to be a little bit more stable, if you could even say that, given all the inflation uh, that we've seen, the, the roller coaster of inflation over the past year. Bitcoin has been the top performing asset, again, in air quotes, this year. And if you go back 10 years, undeniably the best performing asset class. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. Our esteemed guest is Caleb Silver of Investopedia, veteran of Bloomberg News and CNN, where he was Big at CNN Money, the dearly departed CNN Money. I think they're still trying to figure themselves out at CNN, Caleb, but I, I imagine they would have to miss you. I'm sure this is a question you've gotten throughout your business career. What is the meaning of gold and where should it be? I mean, should a person... I remember when gold really surged after the financial crisis. You had crazy things happening. Mr. T showed up at Bloomberg. He was a spokesperson for uh, buying gold or gold ingots or uh, one of these late night commercial things that would show up. Is there a wise and efficient and smart way of adding gold to a portfolio that say if you own an S&P 500 index fund, it would already have gold miners and uh, people with proven reserves in it? Do you need to allocate more than the market weight? And does it ever make sense? Has it vindicated itself? Did it do it in the early 80s? Did it do it during the inflation of the last two years? Is there any evidence to that? Yeah, gold has traditionally been thought of as a safety asset, a safe haven asset. Uh, there is an underlying asset if you do own gold, gold and gold bars somewhere in some safe somewhere. But it's an inflation stabilizer. When inflation is popping, some people think of it as that. And it's a safe haven when you think the stock market's too risky, you hold on to gold. But it never reclaimed the throne, so to speak, as the dominant asset class it was in the earlier 20th century, because we had stocks, right? And we also had a lot of government bonds and a lot of financial instruments that ended up replacing it. There is a place for it in a diversified portfolio, but it's not a big place uh, like it might have been 50, 60 years ago. It's a small position in your portfolio that can stabilize things, can stabilize it when things get volatile. That said, it's only as good as the next person is willing to pay for it. There are still a lot of countries that own huge gold reserves. There's still a lot of people that own gold, hard gold and gold, the commodity. But you can also own it in an ETF wrapper and not actually own it, but just have that exposure. Probably the best case scenario for it today. We're not going back to a gold standard anytime soon. Don't even think about that. But if you want something that sort of mellows your portfolio out a little bit in tough times, that's a good reason to have gold. But it's not like it's going to be an asset class that is going to double, triple in the next 10 years or so. We get so many queries from younger listeners that could be Gen Xers, uh, Gen Yers, who are about to, to inherit things like fur coats from grandparents or minks or family heirlooms, treasuries, certificates, you know, actual physical certificates with the, with the coupon labels on the bottom. It's incredible, you know, to go back to our conversation about generational wealth, that these are things that don't really resonate much with younger people today. I mean, you keep hearing about the generational inheritance of something on the order of $30 trillion and 
the frustration among a large chunk of younger people that they can't plow it into the housing market because there just isn't enough inventory. But, you know, even participating in in straight up markets, there isn't necessarily a go-to place. We heard about robo-advisors a couple of years ago that younger educated people on the West Coast were putting their money with, you know, machine run, effectively uh, disciplines of diversification. I hear uh, from all sorts of brokers that they're trying to make overtures to younger people. It seems like an enormous opportunity to put an enormous amount of generational money to use, but where there's also enormous fragmentation and confusion. So much of it. And we talk, you talk about that big wealth transfer we've all been waiting for, 30 plus trillion dollars going down from the baby boomers and Gen X to younger generations. I know my kids are still waiting for it. And it might happen, but it might happen like it's happening to me with my dad. He's got a lot of baseball cards and some coins. They're cool. And I will dig through those to see if there's a Ken Griffey in there or, or, or a valuable one. But it's not like I'm taking that and some fur coats to a pawn shop and then getting my fortune that way. So it's very different, right? <laughs> the notion of what wealth is, is changed a lot. And I always like to ask this question of people, and I think it's a good one to think about, maybe a good one to talk about with the family over the holidays. What's the difference between being wealthy and being rich? Well, when you and I were growing up, being rich kind of meant you know what you had and what you could fly. Maybe it was the fur coat or the Cadillac or the new station wagon, uh, or maybe it was gold you know, in your, in your safe. But the notion of wealth and creating wealth has changed a lot because we've seen so much wealth generated over the last 30 or 40 years. We've seen more billionaires than ever. We've seen fortunes we could not even fathom with the likes of Elon Musk and and Jeff Bezos be produced. We've seen people go from having nothing to trading some Dogecoins and all of a sudden they got the Ferrari and the yacht. So wealth and being wealthy and being rich has really changed in our minds. And I think younger people, and I have teenage kids, I talk about this with, with them all the time. What is the difference to them because they see rich on social media all the time, but they don't see a lot of wealth. And wealth is that generational wealth, the ability to afford your time and to set your family up for financial success in the future. That's wealth. Full disclosure, please do stay with us. This show podcast to NPR, Spotify, all fine podcatchers indeed, including and especially Apple Podcasts. The link, please subscribe, is fullderadio.com. Again, the handle is fullderadio on all the socials. Please do follow. Caleb, uh, in the 12 minutes or so we have left, I want to get to a subject that's near and dear to your heart, is the opportunity and the peril in uh, climate change and carbon capture and carbon abatement. We have this headline here that nations at the COP28 agree for the first time to transition from fossil fuels. I mean, not that there's immediate actionability. They all shied away from agreed to end fossil fuels. I mean, you know, in in this race to kind of limit heating to 1.5 degrees Celsius, we'd seem to be at a point of uh, desperation and worry. It's visited all sorts of people in terms of, you know, floods in Pakistan last year, the fires that you see, the grid, the taxing of the grid, the bizarre climate events happening across the globe, which are becoming more and more normal as we deal with man-made climate change. But there are cold-eyed people on Wall Street that say this will inevitably lead to opportunity. I'm thinking about the most recent issue of The Economist and the opportunities in carbon capture and low-hanging fruit with finding methane leaks and uh, abating that and actually going out and doing that, and that this misery might bring about opportunity. The animal spirits of the private market are going to try to kind of get in this and, and profit on a solution. Well, of course they are, and we shouldn't be surprised, but uh, you know, the, what it is masking is the actual risk underlying what could happen if we have even more climate disasters and more climate change events. There's a very influential person I follow uh, in a group called Probable Futures that is worth your time because what we don't understand and what a lot of people don't understand is that the entire financial services industry, the entire banking world is underwriting risk, right? And risk has traditionally been maybe this business will fail, maybe there'll be a recession, but we haven't factored in climate change as the ultimate risk because nobody's really prepared for that. Nobody's prepared for the level of devastation that could bring because we just don't know how bad it could get. We have seen examples of it, and you just mentioned a few of them, uh, some of them much worse than others. What we really need to think about is who has underwritten all the risk and all the insurance and all the financing behind all the infrastructure creation, behind all those apartment buildings, you know, down on on the causeway in, in Miami, in Miami Beach. You know, who's 
put their money behind that. In a lot of cases, it's us, individual investors investing in these big banks, investing in these big insurance companies that have underwritten the risk that has not accounted sufficiently for the disasters that could be wrought by climate change. And that is a massive concern. So yeah, you can profit from it. You could profit from climate tech and green tech and you know the Inflation Reduction Act, which was really a climate bill in disguise, had a lot of opportunities there for investors. You saw solar stocks, wind stocks, electric vehicle charging stocks. Those really ran pretty hard as investors piled into those. There are always ways to profit off of a crisis, but I don't think we've accounted for the flip side of that, which is how bad could it get? And if it ever got that bad, what would it mean to the entire capital markets? Should we be invoking the financial crisis era phrase, private profit socialized risk? When you see an Exxon pay CEOs, pay shareholders, have enormous buybacks, but these what they call externalities are borne by taxpayers and are people who have paid the price effectively, developing nations, island nations that are dealing with flooding. Even in Miami, we go back to Miami, king tide right now, having nothing to do with rain where you could be several miles inland and you have to cover your sneakers in plastic bags because the water is gurgling up through the limestone aquifer. These are things that individual taxpayers have to pay for while companies have profited, I guess, yes, in the service of individuals and providing fossil fuels to individuals. Part of me wonders if there's just an enormous class action behind this, because where does that that accountability start and stop? That is the question, right? If we are executives and shareholders are benefiting from the growth of these companies and their ability to generate profits, but not accounting for the risk, then who do you turn to when things go wrong? And you know as well as I do that we could hope for what you're asking for, but there is something we have in this country called lobbying, right? And lobbying gets people elected. And then those people spend the next two to four years or however long they're in office paying back the favors for the people that got them in office, which typically come from private sector interests in the in, in various industries that want to continue the way things have been going for a long time. So there is no accountability there as long as we have that in place in our political system. That shapes a lot of the way things work in this country, and it has since this country was formed. What do we do about it now? Well, there are some companies and some activist groups that want more investors to take positions in these companies, be shareholders, become activist investors with them, and demand that type of change. But until that money moves, you're not going to get that type of movement. People need to vote with their dollars, literally, in terms of the way they invest if they want to invoke change. But it's not just a few people, Robin. A lot of people have to do it. Institutions have to change, but institutions are loath to change because they make a lot of money with this system, and so do their executives. So yeah, in practice, right? Despite what you might say on your sustainability initiative on your website, a Vanguard, a Fidelity, a BlackRock overwhelmingly owns these fossil fuel companies and the enablers and the drillers because we are shareholders after all. If I talk about that S&P 500 framework and the stocks that we own in our retirement accounts and our brokerage accounts, but we have proxies out there that overwhelmingly say we're not there. I mean, what would happen if a Vanguard suddenly turned to an ExxonMobil and said, we are representatives of the majority owners of your company, and you need to stop greenwashing. You need to face a more sober reality, a carbon-constrained reality. Would that change behavior, or are we just talking in the theoretical? Look, ExxonMobil got kicked out of the Dow Jones Industrial Average during the pandemic. The stock goes on to have an enormous rip-roaring time, paying fat dividends. Uh, They continue drilling and investing and looking at projects in, what, South America and offshore and you know, they, they can throw the occasional bone to clean tech and, and sustainability, but it's not their core knitting. No. Uh, but if you did have money managers the size of a Vanguard, a BlackRock, actually standing up to these companies and demanding change, that could make a very big difference. They are some of the biggest shareholders in these companies. And guess who owns the mutual funds that own these companies? We do, individual investors. If you have a 401k, an IRA, a Roth IRA, and you've invested it in an index fund, or you put it in a, in one of these mutual funds run by one of these big managers, you're an owner of these companies indirectly, but you still have a voice. But until that voice gets loud enough where these money managers are actually listening and demand change, nothing is going to happen. And we know that a lot of these massive multi-trillion dollar money managers have acted like they were going to do that. And 
have put up policies that they wouldn't invest in fossil fuel companies after a certain point in time, but a lot of them have backed off of that. What we saw in 2023 and really the end of 2022 was this backlash against what we call ESG, environmental, social, and governance concerns that really was greenwashing in a lot of cases. Companies or fund managers claiming they had funds that wouldn't invest in fossil fuels or tobacco companies. But if you looked into the holdings, they actually did. Or the holdings didn't exactly look, feel, and smell like environmentally sensitive companies. In fact, they were some of the biggest tech companies and some of the biggest oil companies in the world, which is not to say that they don't practice some form of climate moderation or they're going to transition over time. We know the automakers are going to do it. But as long as people continue to buy fossil fuel using cars, as long as we need oil and gas to provide electricity and to provide power, that's not going to change. In, you mentioned it, incidentally, in the few minutes we have left, the, the big three, the big two and a half, seem to be throttling their EV expansion plans. They talk a big game, especially when Super Bowl advertising comes around. But in practice, as we know, if you scrutinize the cash flow statement, the income statement, they overwhelmingly make their money off big gasoline-powered pickup trucks and SUVs. And uh, I guess this is the province of greenwashing. They, you know, Ford talked a lot about the F-150 Lightning, the electric, the EV, but they're, they're pulling back, they're scaling back in kind of production of that. Tesla is having its own issues. Do you keep an extra radar out, you know, knowing your past and your interests for greenwashing, kind of what's real and what's for sale, to quote the great Stone Temple pilots? Yeah, more than that, I have a podcast dedicated to it called The Green Investor because I'm fascinated with this question, right? And I think a lot of investors are. People want to invest with their sensibilities, whether they're environmental, climate-related, uh, or governance-related. They want to do that more and more. So having the ability to learn more about that and learn where your money actually goes is super powerful. And you're right, a lot of these big auto companies have pulled back, but just also they're looking at the market, right? There's only about a 6 to 8% penetration of electric vehicles here in the US on our highways today. If you go to Europe, it's much different. There's a lot more. But until that penetration gets into the double digits, into the 20% or more, then these automakers are going to hold off. And a lot of people weren't buying cars in the past year, year and a half, because car prices got so high and borrowing rates got so high. So they're just trying to move vehicles and move units right now, and they get better margins today off of the old fossil fuel guzzling F-150 than they would off of an EV. And that's also what the automakers were facing during the strike they had with the United Auto Workers, right? What does the future look like when they have to make more electric vehicles, which require less workers and produce less margins? Not a great... Uh, recipe for a higher stock price in a lot of cases. Caleb Silver, I'm going to go hokey on you in closing. Uh, as an immigrant, I came to this country. I get to live the dream of being a journalist and occasionally working with people like you. You help personify my American dream. Oh, that is the nicest thing anybody's told me all week, and I appreciate that. <laughs> oh, shucks. <laughs> Come back anytime. You know I love having you on. Thanks for having me, Robin. Have a very happy holidays. Full disclosure, special thanks to Claire Morgan and Case Graham at Notterly. We podcast to NPR, Apple, Spotify, and all fine podcatchers. The link, please subscribe and rate us and recommend us, is fulldradio.com. Again, fulldradio.com. Follow along on all the socials at handle fulldradio, where you will find details on huge live events at the University of Richmond, including NPR's Steve Inskeep in January of 2024. Wow, 2024. Hmm. A shout out to our listeners on NPR member station Radio IQ, down on WPVM in Asheville, North Carolina, and out in California on KPPQ. You can message me to carry full disclosure on your air. And catch me every week on both MSNBC and NPR's Here and Now. I'm Robin Farzad. Thank you for listening. Back with you next week. <laughs>